Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week's episode is a very exciting one for me. We are discussing Battlestar Galactica, specifically um, the miniseries that kind of preceded the TV show in 2004. So um, it was a three hour long two-parter that acts as a pilot episode. It is great. It is basically the same as the TV show and is, I think, essential viewing if you watch the show. This was a listener request from Leo. So thank you very much for sponsoring this on Patreon. And for listeners who are not super familiar with Battlestar Galactica, uh, this was a reboot of the 1978 TV series, which was, you know, a classic corny sci-fi show about humans versus robots. And the reboot is kind of famously a very critically acclaimed show of the 2000s, um, kind of listed up there with uh, other icons of so-called peak TV. The general concept is that um, there is a human civilization which is made up of 12 planetary colonies and a few decades ago they fought a war against the Cylons who are evil robots that they built. And in the present day of the TV show, the Cylons return having developed technology that allows them to impersonate humans. They are now identical to humans and they instantly obliterate human civilization, leaving a very small number of survivors behind who are clustered around the military spaceship, the Battlestar Galactica, and a fleet of kind of human, uh, of, of civilian ships that then have to try and escape from the Cylons. So that is kind of the general overarching plot of the entire series. And this miniseries introduces all of the main characters during kind of the initial event of this Cylon attack, where they're like scrambling to figure out what's happening and figure out how to survive. And it was released in 2003, um, which I think is a crucial detail here because this is absolutely post 9-11 TV. Yes, big time. Big time. Um, <laughs> although I, it resonated for me more like there's stuff that feels so Drone Wars-y about this which is not what yeah. it was commenting on but that like watching it in 2020 that is that that was in my head and also there were definitely just moments in terms of like global catastrophe that you're watching that watching it in 2020 I was just yeah. like oh Jesus Christ like <laughs> well it, it aged really well for a number of reasons that we were discussing but also they really aren't very overt about the kind of political stuff at all it is extremely plot and character relationship based. And the main TV series was had more, you know, themes. There was more stuff to do with like religion and, you know, Cold War stuff, but it, it isn't really kind of attached to any specific era. So it works really well in that regard. Yes. It was really interesting for me to watch this because this was a show that I didn't watch at the time, I had not seen any of it until watching this miniseries, but it was something that I had a pretty high amount of cultural awareness of because I knew a lot of people who really loved the show because they were really into science fiction. So like, you know, friends in college really loved this or just like I remember seeing lots of like GIFs on Tumblr and stuff of like specific characters, especially Starbuck, who were like really iconic for people. This was such a part of kind of the nerd culture situation that as a teenager, my family did not own a TV, but I watched this on DVD, which I would have ordered off the internet somehow after this came out. So I would have watched this at the age of 14 once it was out on DVD. And I watched this miniseries several times. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had the DVDs in my house also for at least a couple of the seasons because my dad watched it. And my dad is not a huge sci-fi person. Like, he obviously liked and enjoyed this show, but he's not, like, he was never a Trekkie or anything, um, as we discussed on our episode about Wrath of Khan. So this show definitely had, like, a crossover appeal to people who just, like, liked really good television in addition to sci-fi nerds but I think because it started the, sh the show proper started when we were 14 and I wasn't particularly a sci-fi person I was a fantasy kid and I was not a sci-fi kid that like it didn't really appeal to me at that age that if it had aired like 10 years later which it wouldn't have for reasons that we will get yes. into like then I would definitely have watched it 
but I just had this kind of aware, like I knew a lot of the characters' names, I knew what they looked like, I didn't know the specifics of the plot necessarily, but I had like a general concept of what the show was, and it was a little bit surreal to watch it, because I was like, oh well, there's so-and-so, and there's so-and-so, and like I know the, <laughs> that those people end up in a romantic relationship, and like I have some idea of this, but I'd never actually watched the show, and um, this miniseries which I think is kind of, like, I know it is technically a miniseries and that's what it's called, but it feels a little bit like a misnomer to me. I mean, it's definitely just a three hour long backdoor pilot. Yes. It's great. Like, it's really, really good. And the thing that was most interesting to me watching it was the sort of form and structure of this, because as you say, it is a pilot. I mean, it literally, the Wikipedia page, like the little summary at the top says it served as a backdoor pilot for the television series. Like it's obviously what it is, but it's three hours long, which is obviously way longer even than like extended pilots now run and television is longer now than it used to be. And there are ways in which it kind of resembles a movie. Like it doesn't have B plots in quite the same, like a ABC plot in the same way that like a television episode would. And it's clearly costs a lot of money. There's a lot of action in it. And yet something about the way that it's written and shot is like, so identifiably television like the way that the characters are introduced and the way that they interact is just obviously tv but it's tv from like 15 years yeah. ago well the thing is like right? when i was watching it like obviously there's a lot to be we're gonna say about this being so kind of archetypal of that peak tv era like you know sopranos six feet under like the wire that is when this was airing and it was also getting a lot of media attention because that was the point when you know, really in-depth TV criticism was really kicking off in a big way. But the thing it reminded me of, weirdly the most, was The West Wing. And I was just watching it being like, this is like if The West Wing didn't age badly. Because The West Wing now, I find utterly cringy and also kind of tonally, I'm not really into how schmaltzy it is now as an adult. But this show, in terms of like the number of characters in the ensemble cast and the idea that there there isn't really a clear protagonist as such, and just the, there's also like a lot of walk and talk going on and it's a political drama. I was just like, this is this is actually pretty similar to the West Wing, but like grittier, more politically astute and an action show. <laughs> well, I never watched the West Wing. It was it was on too early for me to have watched it. I mean, we're the same age, but my parents were not going to let me watch the West Wing. And then by the time I was a teenager, it was I was not interested. But I, there was some article going around recently about the sort of conundrum of the West Wing because it's obviously aged very badly politically, but this person was arguing, and again, like I haven't actually seen the show, but I am, have seen Sorkin movies and I'm totally willing to buy that this is true, that like on a sort of technical craft level, like a lot of the West Wing is good, right? Oh, yeah, it was like, I mean, Sorkin absolutely. is really talented. It's just that that show occupies this bizarre political space in the American consciousness and probably should not be watched by people so much anymore, except as like an academic project. But he had a huge influence on TV for a long time, and it wasn't just him, of course, but like that sense of television being a, primarily about character relationships and that you were going to buy into these people as characters you were going to see every week for a long time. And so you really wanted to get to know them and understand all of the ways that they interacted with each other and what their foibles were and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just not what is prioritized anymore. So right before watching this last week, I had watched all of the new Netflix show, The Queen's Gambit, which is based on a novel that came out in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Stars Anya Taylor-Joy um, as this chess prodigy in sort of mid-century America. And I think the show does certain things very well and certain things not so well. I had been sort of resistant to watching it because I was like, this clearly is a movie that's been extended into a television show and I yeah, don't approve of that. Yeah, the main comments I've heard about this is that it's very good and it also is way too long. <laughs> yes. Um, but a friend of ours recommended it and I also was just like, I'm so stressed out about the election. I just want to like think about something else and this is on my TV and like, fine, I'll watch it. And I watched the whole thing and I like basically enjoyed it. But it absolutely is a seven hour movie. And like, I hate when people who write TV or produce TV describe television like that because that's not what television is. Television has episodes and it's not an extended movie. But the way this thing is structured, it is structured that way. Like, there's it, the episodes don't really mean anything. It's just this one long, endless story. There are like seven scenes that could all be condensed into one scene. 
every, you know, 20 minutes. Like, they've just extended it so much. And again, there are things the show does well, and I think it's basically entertaining. But it's not television in the traditional sense that we understand it. And, you know, when I think about the shows that I really loved in, like, high school or college, things like Lost or Mad Men or Breaking Bad, all of those shows which were really experimental and exciting in certain ways, also were very traditional in certain ways. So, like, Mad Men, they're in an office, and, like, there are jokes, right? And then there will be some existential thing about, you know, history or men or whatever. But they're all contained in episodes. And, like, you watch one episode and you feel like you've gotten a short story. And you've been entertained, right? Whereas I think the trend now is very much towards producing these sort of like seven to nine episode things that are just like consumable in one bite. Yeah. And this is so not that. This is the old version. And it was so soothing to me to watch because I was like, oh, right. This is what people actually like. (laughs) This is so much more fun. There's so much exposition has to happen in this two-parter. And like they have to introduce it's it's very extensive ensemble cast, along with the world building, like the concept of the Cylons, the gen like there's so much to introduce, right? Every single individual character rules. Like they're all interesting and compelling and fun in some way. They all have a really punchy introduction. But crucially, the exposition is all just like so natural and completely doesn't feel stupid. And there's like a few things that are kind of brought up as intentional hooks that are like a mystery that will come up later, but it's not really bogged down in singular clear mysteries that we're meant to be wondering about or looking forward to later. And when I compare that to the shows that I review now, most of them are either bog standard sort of network TV stuff where it's like still working very simply in the old episodic model, but like the shows are intentionally quite stupid. So it'd be like formulaic, the pilot episodes will be like unbelievably simple and you'll have characters just like telling each other who they are. It's like, which is not necessarily like bad because it's just serving like a particular purpose, but it's like when you watch, you know, elementary or something, it's just very, very simple. But then the other kind of type is just like prestige TV, right? Which is like every genre now, there are shows which are kind of playing to like a big budget prestige drama kind of zone. And they're often like overlong. They will have like too much mystery. They won't attempt to introduce characters in a fun way a lot of the time. And like, it just feels like there's a lot of writers who just don't have the capacity to be writing something that is like a serious, intense, like dramatic TV show of that type, right? Because it's like most TV writers spent like 20 years writing procedural dramas and now suddenly like over the past five years there's been this massive market to make a very expensive big show with lots of concepts. And like the last kind of prestige sci-fi show I reviewed was a couple of months ago and it was Raised by Wolves on HBO, which I liked a lot. I have not finished it, but like when I compare that to this, it is so kind of laden down with like pretentiousness, some of which I enjoyed and other other parts is like not so much. And it doesn't like try to make the characters fun and easy to understand. And the great thing about Battlestar is that like everything is fun and very comprehensible, but it doesn't feel like you're being talked down to. And it is setting up like an incredibly complex, interesting world in a way that just like really works very smoothly. Like there were a couple of moments where you know, in the introductory scenes, like most of it takes place on the Battlestar Galactica itself, but you also get some scenes on Earth um, with Gaius Baltar, who's this scientist, who's this hilarious slime ball who has been seduced by a human looking Cylon into giving over basically the launch codes. So you find out what's happening on Earth via his sexy, sexy relationship with this robot lady. And then on Battlestar, you're introduced to all of the military characters, mostly via the commander who is Commander Adama, who's just about to retire. And then he has relationships with various people on his crew, including uh, Starbuck, who is a character who was famously rebooted from being a guy in the original series. And now she's a girl and she is amazing. We will go into all the characters soon enough. But also there's like, because this Battlestar, the spaceship is like an antique and it's being turned into a museum when he retires you have like this tour guide just walking around literally just explaining the point of the spaceship and I was like this is some very obvious exposition and it's working very well. I will fully accept this conceit where we have a tour guide explaining what this is. (laughs) So yeah I mean 
first episode opens with like several title cards setting up yeah the world for you which shouldn't work no like that i was also be- thinking that because i was like there's a lot more text here that i usually want to know about but you know what you've got it over with fast <laughs> right and like that's preferable to the like inception model of spending an hour with people like explaining everything not that inception could have or should have yeah. done that because that also would have been awkward but like it just gets it over with, right? And then they also have scenes that illustrate the text that you have seen effectively enough that you kind of grasp what is happening on like an instinctual level, as opposed to just intellectually being like, okay, there are Cylons. Like, uh, yeah. do I have just to from that intro, out? you yeah. get like such a good idea of how weird it is that the Cylons look human now, because like they introduce the concept of the robots. You see a couple of the original robots first, and they do just look like really silly. They look like silly old robots, and then an actual human shows up, and it is uh, Number Six, who is played by Trisha Helfer. And when I was rewatching this show, I was like. A, how am I going to feel about number six as a feminist adult? And B, is Morgan going to not like this character? And I was watching it, I was like, I love the sexy robot. <laughs> like, this character's whole role is to be, like, the ultimate, like, seductive vamp. She's wearing these sort of incredibly sexy outfits all the way through. And I like, I love how sexy she is. She's great in her interplay with Gaius Baltar is hilarious because he is just a tremendous performance. A very, very slimy man. But also, like, Trisha Helfer's Helper's performance is so kind of like effectively lizard-like and weird that you're like, actually, this does work. She is like very unsettling. Yes, I think it works because obviously the sort of like sexy robot lady who's threatening to it's human very men much like is a we've seen trope. This. <laughs> yeah, I think it works because she actually has agency, and the man she's like fooling with is such a little worm. He's, that, I like, love him. Every time he did anything, I was like, I love this man. He is the worst. <laughs> James Callis. He's great, but he's awful. Like, that guy sucks so much that you can't really feel bad for him, right? For being stupid enough to have fallen for this. And something about the way she's shot, like, obviously she's meant to be very sexy and, like, sh- that's how she's tricked this guy. But the way the camera treats her it's not like it's not sexualizing her because of course that's part of her character, but it never felt too gross to me, if that makes sense. Like it wasn't overly leering in a way that I found like uncomfortable. And you can also kind of tell that the vibes on the show aren't really like that because the female characters are just so great. There's like, they introduce a really wide range of female characters like off the bat. So you obviously have, you know, you have number six, you have Starbuck, who's this like very butch pilot character who's amazing and I love. Um, and then you also have like various characters who just have sort of like normal jobs who feel like, you know, the staffers from the West Wing, you know, obviously the president lady, like the lady who accidentally becomes the president after everyone dies is Mary McDonald playing Laura Roslin, who is like one of the really iconic characters in the show. Like she and Edward James almost were the big names who were kind of at the head. Yes. I do want to say before we get to Laura Roslin, who is amazing, um, I must say that the clothes that number six wears in this show were absolutely hilarious to me. The most dated aspect of this show were everything that she is wearing. <laughs> oh, most, so good. Oh my God. I loved it. Most everybody else is wearing like a military uniform of some kind, right? Which don't really date. She, however, was wearing the most 2003 clothes I have seen in some time. At one point, she's wearing, like, a jacket or, like, a coat that's supposed to be, like, really hip, you can tell. It's and It's got, kind of, like, hairs. It's got hairs coming off it. Yes. It's, like, clearly, like, polyester and has, like, shimmery hairs coming off, which is, uh, does not look good. And then there's another sort of, like, see-through garment that she wears that sort of, like, buttons down to, like, above her navel and then sort of goes out. Oh, God. Incredible. Also looks bad. So And then maybe my favorite was the, like, black latex slash pleather undergarments that she was wearing for their, like, sexy times. Amazing. I was just looking at them and I was like, that would be so uncomfortable. Well, she's she's a robot. It's fine. (laughs) Costume designer Deborah Everton, also an actress, 
those clothes, because I was looking up and I was like, oh, interesting. They've got some like designer clothes for her to wear from 2003. Because as you said, they do look very much of a time. No, no, Deborah Everton specifically designed those. Because if you Google like the costumes, you will see sketches that she has sketched out. <laughs> Especially the completely transparent skirt suit where you initially are like, oh, there's like a nice Chanel suit. And then you realise that it is 100% transparent. It's like amazing outfit. But um. The kind of the general uniforms are obviously really great and the kind of the the asymmetrical vest tops became like an immediately iconic, easily cosplayable sci-fi design, along with the equally iconic fact that nothing has corners in Battlestar Galactica. Everything is printed out on an octagonal piece of paper with the corners cut off, which is the kind of pointless but delightful world building detail that I can really appreciate. Um, The whole kind of concept of Battlestar is that once the robots attack, everything that's sort of basically high-tech and attached to the government's defense intranet is hacked whereas the Battlestar because it's an antique and has no networked computers it survives so it's like a high-tech sci-fi show where they have like a light speed jump warp engine whatever but they also have to have everything printed out on an octagonal piece of paper and they have to call each other on their walkie-talkies and it's like love this aesthetic I will accept all of it well and it's totally justified by the show yeah absolutely in a smart way right like you completely buy it within the context of the world that they've set up and it allows them to do these kind of like retro things that harken back to mid-century science fiction in a way that doesn't feel gratuitous because they've established that this is how the world works and you're like okay sure like that makes sense i thought that was really clever like, it felt so obvious to me as a plot point that I was kind of surprised I didn't see stuff like that in more movies ripped off from this. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there have been, but, like, I think it was one of these things that is so memorable to Battlestar that, like, every sci-fi fan would just be like, this is too much of a rip-off. Yeah, but that hasn't stopped anyone mm. before. But I do want to talk about Mary McDonnell and Laura Roslin, who is definitely another character who I was very much like aware of having not seen the show because people love her so much. And um, I thought she was the best performance. Oh yeah. I mean, her, her performance is fantastic. And she also gets like, because like all of the actors are really good and kind of, we should talk about many of the other actor- characters as well. But like, it did make me think a little bit of what you said in an episode a few weeks ago about the cast of Mad Men and how like they were so attached to their roles in the public eye that they kind of didn't really take off after that. And I kind of felt like this as well, because there's these characters who, these actors who are like so kind of tied to their roles in this incredibly popular show, their careers didn't take off afterwards. And I think also like in this pilot, at least a lot of the other characters have like quite straightforward, tropey, not cliched, but like very recognizable types of character and Laura Roslin, like, isn't. She has, like, a really unique and unusual type of role to play compared to the others. Yes. She plays the, uh, she's, like, the Secretary of Education or whatever the equivalent is. Yeah. And because she happens to be on this ship and everyone else on, it's not Earth, it's Caprica or something. Yeah. The rest of the government all die. Yeah. And so she becomes the president, which causes tension because then, of course, the military or people don't want to listen to her because she's not the real president. Um, And she's also gotten a cancer diagnosis right at the beginning of the episode before she's gone on this trip. So, you know, the clock is ticking. But she is clearly really good at being in charge of things and managing people and has this sort of um, she has an authority vibe. That's very specific to like a type of older woman who knows how <laughs> to manage people, but also knows that if she does gets angry or is too forceful, that people will not respond to that because she's a woman. And she's so, very quiet, and she has you know. crucially worked as a school teacher for much of her career. I think implicitly as someone who has later on become a education like politician. <laughs> yeah, and it just felt so specific and recognizable to me. And you see the way that the other characters react to that, either by being like, oh, this person is really impressive, and like, I immediately respect her and I'm going to listen to her, or by being like, fuck this, like, I don't like this at all. And there's, it's, the gender stuff isn't explicitly discussed, but it's so obviously a huge part of the subtext of what's going on with that character. And this is, you know, just the very beginning of this story, but it already felt really potent to me in a way that was 
very intriguing. And I think a lot of that is from the performance. Like the writing is very good too, of yeah. course, but she's just really excellent in that role. It really cracked me up when Lee Adama like immediately attaches himself to her like so much. <laughs> Cause like Lee Adama is sort of, he's the son of Commander Adama, like the Admiral in charge of the fleet, Edward James Almos. And kind of they, they set up a conflict really early on where um, there's like kind of the grizzled old commander dad and his extraordinarily pr- repressed son. And they um, have been torn apart by the death of the other son, who was also a pilot and basically shouldn't have been and, sh- and died during some kind of flight accident. So like that destroyed their relationship. So he has like massive daddy issues. And then as soon as he realizes that like Laura Roslin is competent, he like immediately becomes her biggest fan. And she is like the only character he's attached himself to. And this wasn't something I picked up on when I watched this as like a 14 year old and as an adult, I was like, this is a delightful detail. (laughs) It's like, he's found a new mummy. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And crucially one who can argue with his father from a position of power. Yeah, I mean, what? I mean, it's a great situation for him, right? Like, what a dream. <laughs> He's just immediately like, yes, I will do whatever you say. It sounds great. Um, and then his dad, of course, can't stand her because she's, you know, trying to compromise his authority and he wants to fight. I feel like you see these sci-fi narratives in terms of, like, big violent conflicts with either, like, the aliens or the robots or whatever. The idea of the story beginning at the place of oh we've lost like this is not working like it's over and we need to get the fuck out of here i found quite novel um i don't feel like that's the narrative you get very often especially in the sort of current blockbuster era of like every single thing has to be a story about the end of the world and you always wind up winning because that's how storytelling works now in these sort of mainstream projects where everything has to work out fine. And this is completely the opposite of that. Not that like nothing has ever, not that the story's never been told before, but I just found it so much more engaging yeah. than sort of the shifting it back and sort of leading up to that point and then having it all work out, right? Like it's, it was way more engaging to me. I mean, it solves the underdog problem as well, right? Because like everyone loves an underdog story, but if you're talking about sort of a mainstream piece of American pop culture, it's being told from an American perspective, unless you are doing an oppression narrative that like directly ties into real world demographics, then it just doesn't, it's hard to digest the idea of having like American leaders as an underdog. Like it just feels absurd. And in this, they have a situation where it's like they very much are an underdog without like having a foreign enemy that feels like it can be mapped directly onto something racist in real life. Um, But also you can keep exactly the same power structures that we recognize very simply from the Western world. Because like, it's just like they've just killed most of them. (laughs) But they're still there and they're still they're still behaving in the same ways and having the same kind of political squabbles. So it just it just maps. It just works really well. And I think that typically, I mean, I don't know where the show winds up going. It's clear from something that happens at the very end that there's obviously going to be some sort of, like, ethical and emotional conflict over the Cylons in terms of, like... Yeah, I mean, one of the, key, bad, one of the right? key sort of, like, cliffhanger elements of the entire show is, like, we know there's, like, 12 models of Cylons and a bunch of them are embedded in the Battlestar crew. And they kind of tell us what a few of them look like in the miniseries. But we already know by the end of the miniseries that like one of the main characters is a sleeper agent who like doesn't or seemingly like doesn't know that they are a Cylon, which is like a great concept. Yeah. But I think that often in these narratives where you have a sort of cyborg type character like this, the focus is more on that figure's humanity and then maybe the human characters not fully appreciating that or sort of getting it and then either they do get it or the cyborg is like resentful and then sort of lashes out so like that obviously happens in the alien movies and like prometheus there's a big example of that the michael fassbender character which is the only part of that movie that actually is interesting or works um (laughs) is like sabotages everything because he's mad that they're not sort of taking fully taking him seriously. But something also like Ex Machina, which is also obviously take is was made after this, but 
is all about um, the men sort of not fully appreciating the humanity of the Alicia Vikander character who is a robot. And of course, that's all a sort of a metaphor for gender issues, etc. But what I found kind of interesting about the way this was set up was that it didn't do that at all. No. <laughs> it was just like, these people are not people and they are bad and evil and they are trying to kill all of you and they killed everybody, in fact, right at the beginning. Which um, I found sort of bracing, especially given the situation we're currently in with all of the, you know, you hear all these scientists being like, um, AI's bad, and, like, maybe we shouldn't be doing that, whereas, like, our instincts as storytellers is to personalize and humanize everything, right? Yeah. So it completely makes sense that we have all these stories about robots, we want to give them souls, and, like, I love a lot of those movies, like Blade Runner, obviously, great film, but I kind of liked that this wasn't doing that. It was like, no, they're not people, like, yeah. they're I mean, they're basically, bad. like, they're religious fanatics who think that their, like, duty is to just murder every single human in the universe, and like from the ones we meet in the miniseries the only one who feels like a weird robot is trisha helfer number six who is like got like such bad vibes but she also clearly enjoys having bad vibes and her role doesn't really require her to go undercover because her only mission is to seduce this man whose like key personality traits are being an egomaniac and really horny so it's like he's not a difficult target she's easily fooled him for two years because he is not like engaging with her intellectually in any way even though he's like oh i love that you're so smart and it's like sure you do <laughs> whereas like the other robots do like they do feel like people and it's really it really works like obviously kind of when the tv when we get into the main bulk of the tv show we see more that are sleeper agents and kind of like it's really upsetting for them to discover that they are cylons and that sort of thing but um even here like the ones that we meet you know callum keith rennie my beloved canadian character actor callum keith rennie shows up to be like this guy who really just does seem like a shitty man who's like a shitty criminal that they meet at like this basically spice oil tanker and they only figure out that he's a robot because he starts to decay from all the radiation <laughs> and it's like he does just seem like a person which is good yes but there's no um there's no existential issues. No, it's just like, nope, gotta kill him. Like, yeah. he's dead now. <laughs> and there's a scene where he's kind of talking to Edward James Olmos about how the Cylons are the future and they're gonna, et cetera, you know, they're whatever. And it's completely, deliberately playing on slash ripping off the scene in Blade Runner where what's-his-face, I can't remember his name, the blonde guy in Blade Runner is in the rain and is talking about the famous scene in Blade Runner. Yes. Everyone knows what I'm the talking guy. about. The guy. <laughs> but it doesn't have any of the, like, weight of that scene. Because you watch that scene in Blade Runner and you completely are like, oh, this guy has, like, feelings and emotions. And maybe Harrison Ford is the one who is sort of broken. And, of course, the whole thing of Blade Runner is you don't really know whether Harrison Ford is a robot or not. But um, in this show, when he's doing his little monologue, you're just like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> come on, man. I just found it kind of novel. Like, normally you want the villains and things to have kind of three dimensions and depth. But for some reason, the way that they executed this, I think because all of the main characters felt complex to me, like, I didn't particularly need the villains to be like tormented like it yeah. wasn't required but you also like don't really need to see the cylons because like we obviously do see a, a few cylons and like number six is by far the one who has the most screen time in a cylon context but um because the threat is basically just the idea of having your entire planet blown up you don't really need to see that stuff yeah and like i i, I don't really recall the tv show enormously well but like they don't spend, even once they have like episodes and episodes of screen time, they still don't spend a great deal of time like on Cylon spaceships or anything. And when they do, it didn't always work as far as I recall. And I think they just managed to find a way to like give those villain characters loads of really punchy personality. And then like the more you learn about their motives, the less you want to know. Because it's like, you don't need to know. It just has to be like an existential threat. Yeah. And she, number six, works because she does feel kind of like a person but like slightly off but she's really entertaining to watch yes right so like 
that and that's great. Sometimes that's all you need. It's just, she doesn't she need to and, be, She you know. and Gaius Baltar are like an amazing couple. It was actually kind of interesting to like realize just how many couples are introduced in this first episode because they get through it. Pretty much every male-female pairing, they set up so fucking many in those first two episodes. And I was like, wow, is this a little hornier than I remember? And it's also like amazing that they managed to set up that many pairings. And I'm like, I love all the pairings because it's pretty rare for like a mainstream American TV show to be like, here's like a bunch of heterosexual couples and you're actually going to be invested in them and find them charming. The only one that doesn't super work is just like the concept of like Starbuck having this sort of, just having like a boyfriend really, which is just very amusing to, to rewatch as an adult. Because like, for some reason, I really liked Starbuck as a teenager. And when she got long hair and a boyfriend later on in the series, I was like, well, this is nonsense. Who can see? Who can say why I had that response to her character? <laughs> but, um, you know, at some point as an adult, I saw some Tumblr post explaining that that is an iconically queer-coded role, which it is because she, like, shows up being, like, really bitch and fun and being, a, you know, a fighter pilot and smoking a cigar and fighting men. And it's just delightful. And I obviously do not think that, like, none of those character traits make someone a lesbian. However, the character Starbuck, clearly should have been a lesbian and if this show had happened 20 years later maybe that would have happened but um instead they have this kind of thing where it's like you know she's grieving her lost love who is the dead son of commander adama and then later on gets hooked up with a series of increasingly implausible men but all of the other couples they're great love boomer and the uh, and the engineer guy grace park delightful many others too yeah, I t- it was interesting watching it because I tend to feel that romance works way better in movies than in television, which doesn't mean it can't work. And this is, in fact, not a co- criticism of this, but the opposite. But, like, I think it's really hard to make romance work in an extended way on TV. Like, you see so many sitcoms, right, where, like, they'll have a will-they-won't-they yeah. thing, and then they get together, and it's just, like, dead. Like, it's you've killed it. And... Mad Men, for instance, which I keep referencing and always reference when we talk about television because it's my favorite show. The central relationship on that show is between Don and Peggy. Like, I always refer to that as the romance of that show and it's not sexual. But like, the fact that it's not sexual meant that it could go on forever because they were never going to have sex (laughs) and they could have like a couple really intense moments every season and it would be really, you know, you rip your heart out, but it was not about it wasn't about a romantic relationship. It was just that they had this like intense thing. And then Don would go off and marry a secretary. And, like there was that also going on. And I think that it's just really difficult to, in the sort of old model of television, right? Where something would go on for seven seasons, charting a romantic relationship and in a way that actually keeps the audience engaged is really hard because it, you inevitably go like, oh my god, like, they've broken up again, and, like, they've introduced some other person for this person to be hooking up with, like, I don't care. Whereas in a movie that's two hours long, it's, like, perfect form yeah. for, like, a romantic comedy. And you don't have to, like, cater to the idea of being renewed and having to string along a, a plot of life yes. for another 20 episodes. <laughs> yeah. However, undeniably, people love romance, right? And, like, this sort of feeling of, like, wanting characters to get together and, like, not knowing whether it's going to happen is also inherent to television and, like, part of why people enjoy it and I I mean I don't watch sort of like network procedurals really at this point but like I I just feel like no one's even attempting to do that anymore like I'm sure somewhere on some show that's happening but I kind of again was like oh right remember when like you would have these these things going on and in fact it's also like the idea of having a romance that's like actually enjoyable and appealing yes which is like this these two episodes are like they're really funny and they set up a bunch of relationships where you're like this is a compelling and interesting relationship including the couples and also they've like they've got a situation where they can plausibly just have people being massively emotionally volatile and hooking up with people because like everyone just dies. So if you just have a couple of people like make out in the middle of a room, it's like, yeah, that is psychologically very understandable. Yes. (laughs) And so you've got the sort of secondary couples doing their things, they're making out, whatever. But like, I definitely noticed like Starbuck, again, if this movie, if if this show had been made 20 years later, she definitely would have been a lesbian. But like, she has a lot of chemistry with Leodama, right? 
Yeah, and like they're kind of making eyes at each other and like flirting, but they don't like each other. And it's this whole thing going on. And I feel like that kind of situation, again, maybe I'm just not watching the right television. I don't know. But it's very tropey and it's fun to watch. And I just feel like people are not putting enough effort into doing this anymore. Well, I think this is the same this thing anymore. I was discussing earlier, where it's like there's no middle ground between shows that are attempting to be very serious and shows that are just like a silly network procedural. Yeah. Because like the vast majority of network procedurals are just like stringing stuff along. And also most writers like aren't interested in romance. And a lot of the writers who are working on um, either like actual prestige dramas or stuff like, you know, Netflix's Marvel shows, which are like trying to be gritty, but are quite stupid. It's like they're not, they're not looking at sort of like a romantic relationship in the same way that like a Shonda, Shonda Rhimes show is, where they're like, we want you to be enjoying this romance. We want you to find it like sexy and fun and silly, you know. So that is definitely something that's limited. And it's especially limited in like, sci-fi shows for sure yeah i mean i don't watch any sci-fi shows so i will <laughs> i want completely <laughs> take your word for it so another thing this does extremely well in my opinion is the action it was kind of interesting to like get to halfway through episode two of the two-parter and like we essentially just have our first actual fight scene then and it's between like edward james almost who's like retirement age and this decaying robot having like an amazingly like visceral punch up while what in the in this uh, space station so that's like the only really kind of person to person fight scene there obviously is some violence in the sense that like you know planets get blown up and also robots kill people but like the bulk of the combat is in space and obviously because this came out in 2003, kind of the CGI for the space battle scenes, uh, it's like visibly CGI, it does look dated, but it doesn't matter at all because like the way they have framed all of the combat scenes is like very rooted in sort of classic dogfight cinema. So you've they've got like all of the vocal cadence and like the way they have the pilots talking to each other in the cockpit. It's always very clearly easy to follow and it's not massively based around sort of Star Wars style explosion stuff. And because it's like so character based and they've also rooted it in that atmosphere, it works really well. It works so much better than like the vast majority of like sci-fi fantasy action sequences I see now. Um, because this is something that actually particularly annoys me with current Star Trek because there's a great deal of action in current Star Trek, which there wasn't really in like Star Trek from the 90s and before. And they've got a much bigger budget to have like fight scenes in every single episode. And virtually none of those fight scenes are narratively interesting. It's like they're, they've spent all this money to have like a bunch of spaceships chasing each other or to have characters having these really epic gunfights and like martial arts fights in the middle of an episode. There's very little emotional impact to any of them and it all just feels like glitz. And I just keep thinking, please just cut like 10 minutes of spaceship explosions. And if you gave us like 10 minutes of emotional development, that would instantly develop every single character in Star Trek Discovery more than we've like seen at all, you know? And it's like to the point where they literally have Michelle Yeoh as a recurring character. And like even a fight scene with Michelle Yeoh, I'm like, there's no point to this because like I can see Michelle Yeoh fight in other stuff. I would rather have character development. Whereas in this... It feels incredibly tense. It still holds up really well despite the kind of CGI elements. And also the music is so effective. So the music in this is by Robert Gibb. And then later on in the main TV series, it was taken over by Bear McCreary, who's kind of one of the top TV composers. And he got like tons of critical attention. But I was kind of interested that he like didn't compose the music for this miniseries. So like the foundational themes of all of the later soundtracks were written by this guy Robert Gibb who apparently was in the band Oingo Boingo who knew <laughs> um, but um, during all of the space combat scenes they have these like rhythmic drumming which is just makes it so tense and they use all of these uh, like non-orchestral non-western European instruments throughout the show so it like gives it doesn't feel like you're watching you're listening to sort of a traditional uh, like western orchestral scored musical soundtrack and yeah, it's just like a really varied, uh, varied score, which works especially well in the action sequences, I thought. Yeah, and I think the action stuff, I mean, it is definitely dated, which took me out of it a bit. Yeah. But there's not like an excessive amount yeah. of that action 
stuff. It's like the correct amount and it's intercut yeah. a lot with people having conversations indoors. So. Yes. And it's all actually achieving things. And oftentimes there's an emotional component too. Yes. So the two bits that I sort of remember like most from this, obviously having just watched a couple days ago, but like things come to my head are there's a sequence right at sort of the beginning of this whole sort of fiasco where a bunch of their little like fighter jets go out to sort of recon the Cylons and then they immediately stop working because they figured out a way to like cut the power on them basically. And then the one older like plane essentially is still working because they don't have the same like electrical system. And then they're like, Oh my God, we have to get out of here. And then like, you know, hijinks ensue. And all of that uh, is like very dramatic, intense. You see like all these people die, but you're also like getting a ton of important information about a, what the Cylons have been able to do, which is incredibly important for the rest of the show in terms of like you understanding how this works and is also emotionally effective because you realize like, Oh, people are dying. Like this is bad. And then near the end of the second episode, Starbuck goes out and like rescues Leodama and with this like very fancy fighter jet move where she like push basically like hooks her plane onto his and like pushes them both back into the, it's very like cool. landing bay and all of her like internal like whenever they point the camera at her in the cockpit like she has such amazing facial expressions wonderful actress Love yes her. she's great <laughs> but with that you understand a that she's like an insane daredevil because this is a ludicrous thing to do he's flipping out because he's like this is an insane thing to do and see like she obviously cares enough about him that she is willing to do this even if she is a daredevil like it is obviously really he's really important to her that she's that this that she's willing to do this so you're getting enough of the character information while also watching this exciting thing as opposed to you know obviously this is television and i'm comparing it to movies but like so many star wars and marvel bullshit scenes where like they're just showing a bunch of explosions because that's what they think they have to do in these yeah. Movies, I mean, that's right? actually what it's like in, in Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. They're just like spending money. And I'm like, stop spending money. I mean, you could save it. That would be better for your bottom yeah. line. So, yeah. I was just really, really impressed by this. And I found it just so enjoyable. Yeah. It was very, it was very pleasing to rewatch this and realize that it was indeed just as good as I remember. <laughs> and um, I don't, I you probably don't have time, but I would recommend watching season one of the actual show it just kicks off in a really smart way because like once they have the time to sort of expand it does stay in like an episodic format because it's the mid-2000s but it's like the first episode concept is literally just like oh the silence have figured out how to follow us and they find us every 33 minutes so no one can have a full sleep cycle anymore because every 33 minutes they have to like jump the ship so everyone's going like insane and then episode two is like oh we're running out of water so they just have to figure out how to like find or make water so it's like all of the the concepts for the emergency are like so urgent and so well thought out, which is like really, you know, Ronald D. Moore, the showrunner, he really had some great ideas. And this is absolutely like the peak of his career. He's written and showrun many shows. He started out in Star Trek. He wrote in, in Next Generation. He was like one of the key writers in Deep Space Nine, which is like the best Star Trek. And then, you know, since then he's done various things, including bizarrely Outlander, which he was the showrunner of. Um, but yeah, like this was really the peak. Of the Ronald D. Murr. Yeah, it was sort of fascinating to me. I definitely want to watch watch this show now. It was always one of those things where I was like, I should watch Battlestar Galactica yeah. at some point, but like, when does that ever come up? Um, and now I want to continue. But I have seen the first season of Outlander. I was like homesick from work for a week or something at one point a couple of years ago and wound up binging the first season and was like, this is bad, but I'm going to watch the next episode. Like <laughs> there's something about the way it's structured like story-wise where like you just want to keep watching because they like it's cliffhangers galore and you're just like, well, I guess I'll continue. But it's but it's not good. And then he also was the showrunner for the Apple show for all mankind, which was like an alternate <laughs> history of the space race, which I think has been renewed for a second season. Maybe they then canceled it cuz all these places are like doing all these cancellations because of the pandemic but um it was horrible like truly appalling quite sexist which interesting given this show but um 
you know, sometimes people just have their moment in the sun and the genius comes out and then it uh, is expended and that's it. But, um, you know, the writing on this was really superb. So he was he had it for a time, at least. Yeah, <laughs> it's gone now. But in America, anyway, this is available on Peacock, NBC's new streaming platform. They all have streaming platforms now. I, I don't know. But um, I had to sign up to watch this, which was annoying because I had to give them my email, but it was free. And there were some ads, but it was de- it was not very intrusive. Like, it was pretty minimal. But yeah, I'm really glad that I saw this filled, at least partially filled a cultural gap for me. And I found it so enjoyable. So thank you so much to Leo for sponsoring this episode. This was really fun to watch and to talk about. Next week, we will be doing another Patreon sponsored episode we have several lined up uh thank you so much to all of our subscribers uh we will be watching the film the endless which is on netflix which i have not seen but you have yeah i'm really into it i saw it i think two years ago it's a horror sci-fi movie and it's by a couple of indie directors justin benson and aaron moorhead i have watched all of their films um, in this film the endless which is kind of about two brothers who were raised in a cult and go back to visit the cults as adults. And um, yeah, I find them really interesting. And their most recent movie stars Anthony Mackie and is their first non-good film. And I wouldn't recommend it. So um, unfor- we'll talk more about that. But um, yeah, The Endless. Yeah, I remember you seeing that movie and being like, I just saw this great low-budget horror movie. Like, it's so great. And I had sort of like vaguely meant to watch it since then. And um, now have the excuse so uh i'm looking forward to it's that it's a little bro but like it's great i mean i've seen many movies we've seen many we've seen many bro films a little bro so that's fine <laughs> yeah so that will be next week uh if you missed it our commentary track for lord of the rings the two towers is now available on patreon as well as the commentary track for the fellowship of the ring so if you want to check those out those are available on our patreon as well Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can also now find me on YouTube where I recently launched a channel called Behind the Seams. It is all about costume design on film. It's a series of video essays about uh, such varied topics as Mad Max Fury Road and uh, Keira Knightley's historical filmography with all those costumes and um, the costumes of the worst movie ever made, The Room. So there is a lot on there. I hope you all enjoy it. Behind the scenes. <laughs> Excellent. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.